Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and today it's time for a celebration. A birthday celebration, that is. The Land of Desire is officially four years old. Can you believe it? I figured we'd kick off our fifth year with a birthday party. Then I realized that the party needed one crucial ingredient. Cake. After all, as Julia Child once said, a party without cake is just a meeting. But we aren't just going to talk about any old cake. We're going to talk about my favorite, easy, irresistible, and oh-so-French kind of cake, a perfect little seashell that sits on your saucer, begging to be dunked into tea or café au lait. That's right, you guessed it. Today, we're talking about the Madeleine. One of the all-time classics, Madeleines are nevertheless overshadowed sometimes by those jewel-box macarons in a million colors, or the towering piles of shoe pastry and chestnut cream inside a religieuse and delicately stacked opera cakes. The charming little scalloped sponges are humble and unassuming, and that's what makes them wonderful. These are not special occasion cakes. These are the everyday occasion cakes, the Tuesday afternoon treat, the reminder that every day is worth a bit of celebration. Madeleines are the treat of childhood, the simple pleasure of a life well-lived. While Christmas might call for a bouche de Noël and Epiphany demands a galette de roi, the Madeleine is the star of one very beloved ritual in particular, one that most foreigners haven't even heard of. Le goûter. If you would like to feel your soul exit your body, ask a French woman for her favorite snack. The French, she will hiss at you in a low tone, eyebrows lowered in disappointment, do not snack. Snacking? That is an American thing. It's sloppy. It's gauche. Snacking is for undisciplined people, grazing like cattle who wander across the field. The French would never. This solemn truth gets trotted out in every Francophile book published in England or America next to its cousins, like French people take their time eating meals, and of course, French women don't get fat. This unholy trinity of French dining aphorisms endures decade after decade, accepted as gospel by foreigners and French people alike. But of course, like every other stereotype about the French and their eating habits, you have to kick at it a little before the truth really starts to emerge. Here is an accurate statement. French people do indeed eat food on a remarkably synchronized schedule. Compared to the United States, where breakfast takes place anytime between 5 a.m. and 3 p.m., sliding so carelessly into the next eating window that we call it brunch, French dining habits are very strict, very predictable, and very, very universal. At 8 a.m., breakfast. Nothing fancy or too heavy, some café au lait with a croissant. Lunch arrives promptly at noon, like a tidal wave of hunger sweeping over the nation. Whether you're eating a full, leisurely repas, or you're part of the younger generation scarfing down a tartine at your desk, 
On any given day, at 12.30 p.m., more than 50% of the French population is eating. And as any hapless, hungry American tourist learns on their first trip to Paris, dinner does not roll around until 8 p.m. France's mealtime traditions aren't just widespread, they're pretty ancient. In 1393, a useful little text named The Housekeeper of Paris instructed aspiring young housewives in the art of domestic bliss. The text was wide-ranging and eminently practical, covering topics like husbandly devotion, gardening, the hiring and firing of servants, and, of course, food. As the scriptures say, it reminds the reader, to eat once a day is to live the life of an angel, to eat twice a day is to live the life of a man, but to eat three or four or more times a day is to live the life of a beast. As always, this book seems to remind us that what separates us from the animals is our mastery of our appetites but sometimes that mastery is a very thin line indeed. One hundred years before The Housekeeper of Paris was written, manual laborers were already enjoying a dining schedule with at least three meal breaks. Despite living in a world without mechanical clocks, these workers kept to a regular schedule based around the canonical hours of the church. Mealtime changed depending on the season and the length of the days, Nobody wanted to be eating lunch in the dark, after all. But the mealtimes were nevertheless consistent, observed by the whole community, and sometimes even enshrined in local laws. Breakfast took place just after dawn, as the sun was rising. In the middle of the day, workers paused for lunch, the largest meal of the day, oftentimes provided by their overseer. As the sun set around five or six in the evening, the workers received, or went home for, a light supper, before passing out. By the time the ink was dry on the housekeeper of Paris, workers were embracing three square meals a day, no matter how beastly the idea might be. But what about those who weren't so desperate for calories? What about those who lived a life of leisure, free to distinguish themselves from the animals in the field? By the beginning of the 1700s, mealtimes had barely budged from their medieval time slots. The same routine—a light breakfast at dawn, a large satisfying lunch at noon, and light supper at sunset. But then, suddenly, a massive force disrupted the centuries-old tradition. It was the same overwhelming force that disrupted all the other centuries-old traditions in French society at the time— the massive gravitational field of the Sun King, Louis XIV. If all the world's a stage and the men and women merely players, there was no 18th century theatrical production more elaborate and sustained than the royal court of Versailles. The Sun King kept his courtiers happy with bread and circuses, distracting them from political schemes with ostentatious balls, masquerades, and, of course, feasts. Every action Louis took was in service of spectacle, distraction, shock, and awe. It was only a matter of time before his mealtimes followed suit. Almost nothing about the Sun King was private. 
His courtiers watched him dress, shave, go to the bathroom, and of course, eat. The king's lunch was traditionally hearty, but that was nothing compared to the meal to come. A light supper before bed? Not when you're a living god. At 10 p.m., the doors opened to the greatest culinary spectacle in 18th century France, Le Grand Couvert, the king's dinner. Anyone who was anyone was there, and anyone who wanted to be someone was there too. The king and queen sat behind an enormous table decorated with gold, silver, and crystal, while 324 different staff members prepared, plated, and served a dinner for the ages. Soup, eggs, oysters, aspics, pâté, meat pie, and those were just the appetizers. Chickens, steaks, game birds, venison, fish, often one of those stuffed inside one of the other ones. They were all paraded out for the king's consumption, accompanied by side dishes. Then, of course, came dessert. A fantasia of spun sugar, cream, pastry, bonbons, and more. By the end of the king's supper, Louis often consumed 30 different dishes, all washed down with enormous amounts of wine. While he ate, hundreds of courtiers passed slowly in front of the king's table, watching him eat in reverent silence. The entire gluttonous display took less than one hour. Needless to say, when King Louis XIV says dinner is the main meal and it starts at 10 p.m., well, dinner is the main meal now, and it starts at 10 p.m. Practically overnight, centuries of tradition around heavy lunches and light early suppers disappeared. For the king, a moderate lunch with a very long break was critical if he was going to work up such a legendary appetite as his dinner feast required. For the upper classes, whose lives were dictated by the sun king, not the actual sun, Refueling halfway through the working day and getting to bed early wasn't really a priority. But over time, of course, even the hoi polloi pick up on the habits at the palace, and over the next 200 years, these royal mealtime shifts trickled down to even the bourgeoisie. While the average French person didn't go so far as to chow down at 10 p.m., the dinner hour crept further and further past the traditional 6 p.m. time slot. By the age of Napoleon, a dinner in France was a solid 8 p.m. affair. The problem was, most French people weren't eating like Louis XIV. Sure, when you're doing a one-meal-a-day diet and that one meal is 47,000 calories, yeah, you can afford to put eight hours or more in between lunch and dinner. But the average French person now found themselves doing an involuntary sort of intermittent fasting— and those with high-calorie needs were struggling to make it through the day. Somewhere in the midst of this transition, the French developed a solution. Le goûter. What is le goûter? It's an afternoon tea. It's a little something special to get you through the day. It's a small bit of food, something a bit rich and sweet, to tide you over during the long eight hours between lunch and dinner. But is it a snack? 
<laughs> Heavens, no. Didn't I tell you? The French do not snack. They simply faire goûter. They have a taste. And when it's time to figure out what food they're not snacking on, French households reach to a classic, a standby, the perfect little something, le madeleine. Nobody really knows where madelines come from. There are three different mythical origin stories, but who knows if any of them is correct. Everything I'm about to discuss is pure speculation, folklore, and culinary myth. But it's tasty and evocative myth, so pourquoi pas? The most popular stories all trace back to the small town of Commercy, located in that historical hot potato, Alsace-Lorraine. Commercy sits along one of the most famous footpaths in the world, the Camino de Santiago de Campostela. The Camino de Santiago was one of the most important pilgrimage routes of the Middle Ages, a literal path to glory which promised spiritual growth and perhaps a better shot at making it into heaven. According to legend, after the Apostle James was martyred in Jerusalem, his disciples put his body in a boat and rowed him out to sea, eventually washing up on the shores of Santiago de Campostela. The chance to visit the resting place of an actual apostle was irresistible. All over Europe, pilgrims walked out their front door and hit the road, walking for weeks or months or even years at a time, eventually making their way to Spain. Every year, as many as 250,000 people, almost all of whom were illiterate, made their way across thousands of miles of unfamiliar territory. In order to navigate, the pilgrimage routes were dotted with the traditional symbol of St. James, a scalloped shell. Why the scalloped shell? Well, just like that novelty shot glass that you picked up in Cabo last year, pilgrims wanted some kind of souvenir to remember their trip. When they'd reached the end of the journey, most pilgrims would continue on making their way past Santiago de Campostela to the city's beach, where St. James's boat supposedly washed ashore, and they'd slip a seashell into their pocket. I walked a thousand miles across unpaved roads without knowing how to read, you can almost hear them say, and all I got was this lousy seashell. But those seashells worked. All along the vast network of main routes and side routes, seashell signs and statues and tiles and mosaics helped keep the pilgrims on track. In an age when most people never made it 10 miles from their own house, following the seashells allowed millions of Europeans to make the trip of a lifetime. Almost all of the pilgrims would make their way through France to get to Santiago de Compostela, and the French certainly seized that opportunity. Like whistle-stop towns springing up next to newly laid railroad tracks in the Wild West, Villages hustled to serve the needs of the thousands of pilgrims passing through. Need a bed for the night? Need any supplies? Need a sacred amulet to keep you protected on the road? And of course, need something to eat? In Commerci, so the story goes, the local women saw a perfect opportunity. A small little cake for the pilgrims, baked inside one of those iconic seashells, 
just the right size to carry in one's hand on the road to eternal glory. Unlike so many other iconic French pastries, the Madeleine is a simple, humble affair. Madeleines are essentially a tiny pound cake made of equal parts flour and butter, a whole bunch of honey with a few eggs thrown in. These aren't the province of a master pastry chef, but they sound like the handiwork of some enterprising local housewives. Madeleines make perfect business sense as an easy treat which you can make in vast quantities for the masses of pilgrims passing through town. So, according to legend, the Madeleine was born. But how did the Madeleine become famous? The great pilgrimage routes of the Middle Ages began petering out as everybody got distracted by things like the Renaissance, the printing press, and the exciting arrival of chocolate. The Madeleine may have faded into local obscurity, a regional treat reserved for special occasions. Whatever fond memories of those tiny cakes may have lingered in the minds of the old pilgrims, they didn't include any recipes. Instead, the Madeleine would hit the big time through a more modern channel. Influencers In the 1750s, Commercy gained a very prestigious new neighbor. Stanislaus I, the deposed King of Poland and the father-in-law of the King, Louis XV. Despite his habit of getting invaded and kicked off the throne, Stanislaus I was well-respected, a very learned gentleman who eventually gave up on his inheritance and settled in Alsace-Lorraine to write books and study the sciences and get into polite arguments with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, all while hosting guests at his beautiful chateau outside Commercy. One night, the legend goes, disaster struck. After a terrible argument in the kitchens, Stanislaus's pastry chef stormed out into the night without even having the good graces to prepare dessert first. Quelle horreur! It couldn't have happened on a worse night. The king himself, Louis XV, was dining at the chateau that night, looking forward to good conversation and tasty treats with his father-in-law. While the kitchen staff panicked, a young woman named Madeleine Palmier quietly stepped forward. There was no time for elegant patisserie or time-consuming jellies. Madeline rolled up her sleeves and whipped up a bunch of her own family recipe, her grandmother's sweet little seashell sponge cakes. Could such a dessert possibly be fit for not one but two kings? After dessert, Stanislaus I sent word to the kitchen. Send out whoever was responsible for tonight's dessert. Out stepped the nervous young woman, confused, her hands still covered in flour. What is the name of this masterpiece? asked the king. It has no name, your majesty, replied the servant girl. We just bake these on festival days in Commercy. And what is your name? the king replied. Madeleine Palmier. Then we shall name them after you, the Madeleines de Commercy. As the story tells it, Louis XV and his wife, the very popular Queen Marie, daughter of Stanislaus I, loved the little cakes they tasted that night. 
They enjoyed them so much, in fact, that they brought the cakes all the way back to the court of Versailles for their own chefs to inspect and recreate. Naturally, if King Louis XV loved a food, the court of Versailles soon loved that food too. And if a new food was all the rage at Versailles, it was only a matter of time before that food became the hot ticket around Parisian society at large. Whatever the origins of that little cake may be, whether they were born out of a pilgrim's progress or a king's pantry, they remained, by and large, a regional delicacy, a well-appreciated but not especially famous or beloved treat for the next hundred years. A few decades after that dinner in Commercy, King Louis XV's grandson inherited the throne, did a rather poor job of things, and plunged the nation into a great revolution. Those famous rising bread prices didn't just crush the baguette bakers. With flour so dear, people were hardly whipping up little madeleines in the kitchen. It wasn't until the 1850s that the modern madeleine we know and love today really took off, and it did so thanks to another kind of revolution entirely. Until the 19th century, the only way to acquire a metal baking pan was to swing by the artisan's workshop. Aluminum was so rare, precious, and hard to refine that it cost more than gold or silver. Cast iron was a recent invention, and it was pretty expensive, so if you purchased anything made out of cast iron, it was likely to be more of a workhouse tool for the kitchen, a skillet, a cauldron, or a baking sheet. Then, as now, French bakers and pastry artists preferred cookware made of copper, but it had to be hammered into shape by skilled artisans, driving the price of each piece up to the heavens. When the Sun King's servants had been rolling out a molded cake, they weren't just showing off how much sugar the King of France could buy, they were showing off the fine quality of the cookware his kitchens could afford. All of this is to say, unless you were actually in business producing them for a living, most households weren't going to lay out serious cash for a scalloped baking pan just to make their favorite treat. These beautifully crafted baking molds and the newly invented kitchen range, which offered stable temperature control and lighter textured cakes, these belonged squarely in the domain of royal kitchens. The most famous kitchen of them all belonged to Talleyrand, the famous French statesman. Inside, one of the greatest geniuses in French history invented an entirely new grammar of baking. Antonin Carême, the father of French cuisine, is also the father of French pâtisserie. In 1815, he published Le Pâtisserie Royale Parisienne and Le Pâtisserie Pittoresque, which set a standard for pastry arts that remains essentially unchanged to this day, towering creations of choux pastry, custard creams, spun sugar, molded chocolate, the most elaborate, outrageous possible desserts, fit for aristocrats living in a wealthy empire. The Paris-Brest, the Gâteau Saint-Adoré, the classic strawberry tart. Pastries were now elevated so high above the materials and the ingredients available to the common housewife that home baking in France just started to die out. 
As the food historian Nicolas Humble puts it, French patisserie is essentially a professional matter. The French have little tradition of home baking. And think about it. Why bother making a cake when the artisan on the corner can make you a tiny little miracle of sugar? While Carême and his disciples used precious ingredients, artisanal cookware, and a fleet of kitchen assistants to realize their pastry dreams, the average early 19th century French housewife was still working with an unruly chimney, one or two rudimentary cooking vessels, and a lot of elbow grease. But then came the Industrial Revolution. Suddenly, the markets flooded with copper and tin ore. Cast iron became cheap and easy. Mass production lowered the price of consumer home goods. The Atlantic slave trade poured sugar into Europe like never before, while global trade ushered in tons of tea from China. Suddenly, the traditional French kitchen looked unrecognizable. The author of that medieval guide, the housekeeper of Paris, wouldn't know where they were at all. A housewife had access to professionally milled flour and more sugar than her grandmother could have purchased in a lifetime. She had access to miraculous new baking soda and baking powder, so she no longer had to spend 45 minutes beating eggs with a whisk to get something to rise. Best of all, she had stuff. So much stuff. Teapots and sugar bowls and tongs and sugar and tea to go in them. Forks and spoons. And above all, she had baking tins. Oh, did she have a lot of baking tins. As anyone who's ever watched the Victorian episodes of the Great British Bake Off knows, 19th century Europeans were obsessed with sculpting their food. Because for the first time, most people could afford to do so. They didn't need a handcrafted copper masterpiece. They could pick up an elaborate tin or cast iron mold at the corner store. Suddenly, anyone could make an aspic, a jelly, a food shaped like another food, and of course, a molded cake. But just because they could didn't necessarily mean that they did. In Britain, with its long history of home baking, women cranked out plum puddings and Savoy cakes in distinctive shapes in every home on the street. But in France, most of these culinary innovations went towards improving dinner, not necessarily dessert. If they wanted a showstopper on the table, French housewives would buy one at the patisserie on the corner like everybody else. But, once again, there's an exception to the rule. French women don't bake desserts when they can just buy them instead. But what if you want something for that other meal? The secret meal. The meal that isn't a meal. What if you want something for, dare I say it, a snack? By the turn of the 20th century, the stage was set. Meal times were fixed, and thanks to Louis XIV, they were spread far apart. Early breakfast, a large supper at noon, and an endless hungry desert stretching out until 8 p.m. French children now attended public schools, and the late afternoon sparked a mass migration as les enfants shuffled home at the end of the school day. 
lest you think French children have some preternatural metabolism which prevents them from getting cranky when their blood sugar drops, French women knew exactly what their children needed to get them through until dinner. Le goûter. Not a snack. Just a small, sweet treat to help stave off hunger in between meals. You know, that kind of thing. Before long, le goûter was as much a refined, unassailable tradition as the other three official meals. Le goûter was more than a meal. It was a ritual. Le goûter always happened at four in the afternoon. Le goûter was eh, kind of optional for adults, but absolutely necessary for children. Le goûter was something small, and above all else, le goûter was always, always sweet. So, what is a French mother at the turn of the 20th century to do? She has a household of cranky, hungry children expecting their daily sweet. She doesn't really do any home baking, but she isn't going to waste money buying a Paris-Brest every day for a six-year-old who won't appreciate it anyway. She needs something she can whip up in a jiffy, using ingredients she already has on hand. She needs something that won't take very long. At long last, the moment of the Madeleine had arrived. The average French woman in 1900 would have turned to her favorite cookbook, the popular Le Cuisinier de la Campagne de la Vie by Louis Eustache Odeau. Inside, she'd find a simple recipe. Butter, sugar, lemon zest, eggs, a bit of orange blossom water, and flour. Mixing everything together for a few minutes, she'd spoon the batter into her mass-produced baking tin with its delightful, distinct seashell forms. In just ten minutes, the perfect little madelines would emerge from the oven, warm, sweet, just the right size for the snack that wasn't a snack. A little basket of steaming madelines with a cup of tea that was the perfect goûter. An entire generation of children came to associate the late afternoon with a warm scalloped cake. And one day, in 1913, a young new author immortalized this sacred association between Madeleines and motherly love. In the first volume of his masterpiece, In Search of Lost Time, Marcel Proust's narrator finds himself transported through time by the unexpected sense memory of a Madeline. One day in winter, as I came home, my mother, seeing that I was cold, offered me some tea, a thing I did not ordinarily take. I declined at first, and then, for no particular reason, changed my mind. She sent out for one of those short, plump little cakes called petite madelines, which look as though they have been molded in the fluted scallop of a pilgrim's shell. A shudder ran through my whole body, and I stopped, intent upon the extraordinary changes that were taking place. An exquisite pleasure had invaded my senses, individual, detached, with no suggestion of its origin. And all at once, the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to me, its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory, this new sensation having had on me the effect which love has of filling me with a precious essence, or rather this essence was not in me, it was myself. And suddenly, the memory returns, 
the taste was that of the little crumb of Madeline, which on Sunday mornings at Combray, when I used to say good day to her in her bedroom, my Aunt Leonie used to give me, dipping it first in her own cup of real or of lime flower tea. For Marcel, as for so many millions of French children, the Madeline was the taste of home. In a country of elaborate, professional pastries baked by strangers, the Madeline represented that rare, homespun treat, an essential element of that 4 p.m. ritual meal that is not a snack. Madelines continue to get hungry children through to dinner time to this day. While the French may insist with a straight face that they do not snack, the popularity of the beloved afternoon Madeline persists. When it comes to le goûter, the old chestnut rings true. Let them eat cake. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. This week, if you haven't done so already, I highly recommend signing up for the Land of Desire newsletter at thelandofdesire.substack.com. That's thelandofdesire.substack.com. Why? Because I'm going to share my favorite Madeline recipe with you. Like millions of others, I am a stress baker. And these uncertain times mean I've spent a large part of 2020 in the kitchen. And a lot of that time has been spent making Madelines. They're simple, delicious, and really fun to make. So, order a baking tin online. It's 12 bucks well spent. Keep an eye on your inbox for my recipe and give them a try this weekend. When you do, please share your pictures with me. You can post them on Facebook or tag the Land of Desire in an Instagram post or just send them to me in an email. Let's celebrate together with a little podcast birthday cake. And until next time, au revoir!